Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. It's now early May, which means it's been about two months since the coronavirus pandemic has taken hold of the U.S. Cases of COVID-19 are still on the rise across the country, as are the numbers of people who have died from it. Outbreaks are still worse in some places than others. And there's still a lot of uncertainty about the path the pandemic will take in the coming months. But many cities and states across the country are now turning their attention to trying to get back to something more like normal, getting people back to work, opening restaurants, and easing social distancing guidance. But what will it take to make sure all of that happens in a safe way? That was a question that WebMD had for Dr. Richard Besser, president of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and a former interim director of the CDC. He told WebMD's chief medical officer, Dr. John White, the things leaders should be thinking about as they start to make these decisions. Here's their conversation from WebMD's daily video series, Coronavirus in Context. You're on this multi-state regional council to reopen the economy, and everyone's talking about uh, whether or not it's too early or is it okay to do. What do we need to know and how do we decide and and what are you thinking about as you're part of this council to to reopen the economy, reopen the state, however we want to phrase it? Yeah, well, you know, I think we want to do this carefully, slowly, and, and based on the best available public health science. And there, there are a number of things that have to be in place to be able to, to meet those criteria of doing it safely. Uh, the first is you have to make sure there's enough capacity in your healthcare system, because when you start to loosen up some of these, uh, these uh, requirements uh, and let people come out a little bit more, we are going to see more cases of COVID. It's, it's inevitable. So you want to make sure there's enough beds to take care of, of people. There's enough healthcare providers. There's enough protective equipment for those people who are, are, are providing that care. You want to make sure there's enough care in your, uh, enough room in your healthcare system to take care of all of the other medical problems. You know, they didn't go away during COVID. There's still people who need surgery for cancer. There are people who need treatment of their heart disease, of their kidney disease, of their diabetes. So there has to be room in the healthcare system, or, or as, as soon as you start to, to loosen things up and open up, you'll, you'll have an overwhelmed system again. Then you want to make sure there's sufficient testing, because right now, most states, most, most hospitals are only testing people who are severely ill. And we know that there's a wide range of illness with COVID. There's people who have no symptoms, but you at least want to be able to test people who have mild symptoms, mm-hmm. because... While it may be mild for them, they could be the person who spreads it to someone else who's at high risk. So if you can identify everyone who who is sick, then then do basic public health. Identify all the people those people have had contact with and tell them to spend two weeks away from everybody else uh, so that they don't spread it if they get sick. In addition to that, Mm -hmm. you need to make sure that everyone in America can do those things. And that means thinking about creative ways to provide safe places for people to, to isolate or quarantine. Mm-hmm. Hotels, dormitory rooms, there's all kinds of ways you can approach it, but just sending people home means that you're saying to those people who live with someone who's elderly or live in a, a small apartment with many people mm-hmm. that you don't really care whether they spread it to their families. You mentioned contact tracing, and that's why I was gonna ask you, some people have said there's no way we have enough public health officials to do that, even if we hire 100,000 more people. So what's the role of tech 
Google and Apple have been talking about, hey, we can use technology, Bluetooth, location services, whatever, to play a role there. Does that really have a role or is there just the cultural issues here in the United States that we're not going to give up that amount of privacy to advance public health? You know, I, I think that technology can be a tool that's, that's part of this, uh, but you're not going to be able to replace the, the need for public health workers. Uh, you know, one, there, there are a lot of people who are out of work, and so there are people who can be trained to do this kind of work. And, and one thing, you know, as, as you move towards a strategy where you're going to try and identify cases and do contact tracing, the public has to believe that this is in their best interests. Contact tracing involves asking all kinds of very personal questions about where you've been, who you've been in contact with. And so recruiting people from diverse communities so that people are doing contact tracing in the communities in which they live would, would allow people to, to uh, feel more comfortable with providing this information, uh, with, with participating in this. Um, and then, yeah, there are tools that could be used to, to ensure that you're you're collecting this information and sharing it. One thing that that uh, uh, you know this regional group will, will be talking about is how do you share this kind of information across states? Someone in New York City uh, isn't limiting their contacts to people in, in New York City or New York State. You want to make sure that you can share information with Connecticut and New Jersey and, and, and other places. And technology, I, I would think, would have a role to play there. I, I worry greatly about the, the thinking that technology uh, using it as location trackers would be, would uh, allow you to say where a person's been and who they've been in, in contact with with devices. I think it's uh, it's a slippery slope in terms of personal privacy, and and uh, I think very few people would trust big tech with that kind of information. You were the acting director of the CDC during a different epidemic, and you were out there every day talking to the country about what we needed to do, what we knew, what we didn't know. Why do you think we're not seeing the CDC front and center during this epidemic? You know, I, I wish I knew the answer to that, John, because I think that the transparent, open communication uh, was critically important. It was a critical success factor for us in 2009, and we're missing that right now. It's very hard to know what things were being told uh, for public health reasons and what things were being told for for policy reasons and what things were being told for for political reasons and and it, 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 I found it very valuable uh, when I was in that role to have the media asking me really hard questions. It improved our work it It forced us to go back and say, well why aren 't we thinking about that why why haven 't we we answered that question? What can we do to find out that information? And, and CDC isn't getting that interaction right now, and the public isn't getting to hear from the world's best public health scientists. And the media world has changed since then, even over the last few years with the proliferation of social media. Everyone who has a blog seems to be an expert in, in public health and epidemiology. So what guidance do you give folks in, in terms of where they should go for that information? The CDC is a great site, but let's be honest, in this day and age, a lot of folks don't end up there as, as well as they should. But how should we decide how we trust the information? We hear, we read, we find online. Yeah, it's, it's a much bigger challenge now than it was in 2009. It was challenging then with all kinds all right. of misinformation yeah. and uh, fake cures uh, out mm -hmm. there on the internet. But now we have such a hyper-polarized society and people getting their information from 
from very different voices, uh, it, it makes it challenging. I, I tend to recommend government sources as a good place to start. So the CDC website, NIH, uh, FDA, FEMA has a rumor control site that, that I like. Johns Hopkins has a terrific resource center for, for COVID. Uh, Preventing Epidemics, which is Tom Frieden's uh, uh, organization out of uh, New York, has, mm -hmm. has terrific materials. Uh, and then it, once you find a site that is really good, uh, many of these sites also have links to other sites right. that, with, with high quality information. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but just clicking on whatever someone yeah. shared with you on, on Facebook, that can lead to some, some big problems. Right. Well, Dr. Besser, I want to thank you for taking the time today to share your insights. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's a, it's a real pleasure. We just heard Dr. Besser describe what it's going to take before Americans can get back to some semblance of regular life, including the critical role of testing. And testing remains a hot topic, whether it's the numbers of people being tested or what the results can mean. But what can testing tell us about when it's safe to resume your normal life? What are scientists going to be watching for when more people start to get tested? Dr. White spoke with immunology expert Vincent Racaniello about the different types of tests, how effective they are, and once you've had the coronavirus, how likely you are to get it again. Let's start with the basics. What's the difference between antibody testing and diagnostic testing? So a diagnostic test will tell you if you're infected at the moment the test is taken. You typically give a nasopharyngeal swab. They look for, in the lab, they look for nucleic acid of the virus by an amplification method called PCR. And that tells you if you're infected, but of course it only works as long as the virus is in you. Mm -hmm. And an antibody test will tell you if you were in, infected last week last month or even last year or 10 years ago. So it's a permanent record of the infection long after it's over. So I'm going to come back to that, whether it can tell if you are immune from a week ago, because there's some issue of, of timing. But let's talk about how these tests are done. And there's different strategies. And uh, we hear a lot about these point of care tests mm -hmm. that you would do with the fingerprint. And um, I saw a memo recently that, that talked about these tests are actually authorized by the FDA, not approved. So there is a lower standard of accuracy. Is that right? That's right. These rapid tests, which you do with a little bit of blood from a pinprick on your finger, they work in about 15 minutes. They're dipstick tests, it's sort of like a pregnancy test that you put some urine on. They the first time, up. yeah. Mm -hmm. They develop rapidly and they can give you an answer, but they're not hugely accurate. They're good for a broad a swath of what's going on out there. We have them for influenza virus infections. Yeah, but those have been approved outside <laughs> of a, a public health declaration. And the FDA commissioner said there are a lot of inaccurate tests out there, which could give people misinformation. Now, what about the fact that these are qualitative tests? Are they not the ones that we're currently talking about? Either you have antibodies or you don't. Yeah, is that's that really good enough. Is that really, good enough? Really important point. It will just tell you yes or no 
not how much immunity you have, right? So it won't tell you if you're protected from another infection and whether you're safe enough to go back to work. It's just going to say yes or so no. Why are we talking about them then? Well, are that's they good enough. Are they good enough? <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, I think it's good to know who's been infected. Essentially, we're going to take a chance. These are the fastest tests we can get out there. We can test the most number of people with them because the alternative is a lot more time consuming. And we're going to see if that's good enough to tell us whether you can go back to work or not, because that's really the goal. But you might be exposing people um, to infection. If they're not truly recovered, they could still be infecting others, right? I'm not so concerned about that. I think if you wait long enough after the end of illness, of clinical illness, you know, if you wait a certain amount of time, you're probably not shedding. You know, this infection peaks in a healthy person with an uncomplicated illness in about seven to 10 days. Uh -huh. so I, I think after two weeks or so, you're not shedding that much. The, the real concern here for me is whether you're really okay to go back in, in, in the workforce where you might encounter other infections. Now, without giving us an immunology lesson, you know, is there some data that says, you know, there's IgM, there's IgG, there's IgA, which, you know, we can send people to to find out more. Um, but is it really you have to wait 20, 28 days after you've been infected to find these neutralizing antibodies, which really are what we need, isn't it? Well, the neutralizing antibodies will protect you, but of course, these rapid tests will not distinguish between yeah. those and any other antibody against SARS-CoV-2. But you do start making these antibodies 7 to 14 days after you're initially infected, and the IgM, as you mentioned, they come up first, yeah. last about two months, and then IgG are the long-term lasting ones. And that's another issue. The IgM can cross-react with other coronaviruses, yeah. so if you're just looking for that, that's not a good test. You have yeah. to look for both. Now, Dr. Fauci has said we're going to consider giving these certificates of immunity to mm -hmm. people. Is, is, are they going to be valuable at all? Will that really tell us? Because aren't what we're really saying is they're not going to uh, get reinfected because they have immunity. But are you sure that's true from these tests that we're currently talking about primarily? Well, if, if by immunity... And it's a, it's a word that can mean two things. It, could mean, it can mean any antibody or any immune response against the pathogen versus protection. So notice they're not certificates of protection. Yes. They're just immunity, although in some people's that's mind. That's what people immune, are assuming. That's yeah, I agree. But I, I don't think that you can say that you're immune because you're not quantitating how much antibody. It's all or none, right? And some people right. are going to have very low amounts. They may not be protected. Should we really be doing then a serum test to get that quantitative amount to know for sure? Let's assume you had unlimited resources. What test, Vince, would you do to tell us that you're immune from getting reinfected? Oh, I would take a tube of blood from you, from your arm vein, first of all, not just a little bit. And then you bring that to a clinical lab, and then you do a quantitative test where you make dilutions of serum and against a fixed amount of virus protein, and you can tell exactly what levels of antibody you have. And if you even wanted to do better, if you wanted to know protection, you would have to know about neutralizing antibodies, sure. right? So, so why can't we do that? Is it just resource intensity? 
how are we going to do 300 million tests? Yeah, we, we can't do that, right? We, we can barely do 300 million rapid tests. Uh, that's, that's why we're doing the rapid tests, because we can do them quickly and they'll give us an idea, but they're not definitive in terms of protection by any means. But are we then taking time away from the diagnostic test, right? Don't we still want to rapidly build that up? How are we going to do millions of diagnostic tests? And now we're going to ramp up million of antibody tests. Yeah. Well, I think that these, these point-of-care tests are not going to tax the clinical laboratory capacity of the U.S. And I think at the same time, they need to be developing the quantitative assays, and we sh should start ramping that up. I'm hoping that's happening behind the scenes, you know, and they're not, they're, they're not being told about it, but that absolutely has to be done at the same time for sure. And what about this issue of reactivation? We talked about that on a, on a previous interview. Some people are saying that they recovered uh, and then they tested positive again. There's even some people that are saying this is like herpes, a DNA virus instead of an RNA virus. What, what's going on here with reactivation? Could, could they have been immune and then get the infection again? I, I don't think so. I think what happened is they uh, recovered and then the tests, you know, the tests that were done, the diagnostic tests were wrong. And yeah. so then at some later time, they tested them again and they saw they were positive again. But I don't think at that point they're actually shedding virus. They're probably shedding pieces of nucleic acid. And so I'm not worried that this is a persistent virus that's mm -hmm. going to come and go over and over. This is a virus that gets you, you get immune. And then later, if you get another infection, it's going to be much milder. So I'm, I don't put much stock into those reports. So you do believe that once infected, you likely develop some immunity to COVID-19? Absolutely. Some immunity, and if you are reinfected at a later date, let's say in the winter when the virus is coming back, you might not even know it. You could get a, a mild disease with few symptoms because your immune response is protecting you. So you think you're protected? Yes. So do we need the quantitative tests? I think the quantitative tests, at least initially, would give us an idea of whether the rapid tests are telling us about just general immunity or protection. So it's kind of a, a research question. Can we depend on the rapid tests? And so in parallel, we should do rapid and quantitative and say, oh, yeah, everyone that has a rapid positive is protected. That would be great information to have. So we have these point-of-care tests, which are the pinpricks, mm -hmm. uh, for which we have perhaps greater capacity, and then the quantitative tests is we would do a lipid or, you know, CBC or anything like that. Right. How concerned do you get when we, the public often, we don't often understand that tests aren't 100%. Mm -hmm. Um, and folks tend to believe the test result, whether it's a diagnostic test, whether or not you have coronavirus, or whether or not you have antibodies. What, what are your thoughts on how we educate folks more about tests aren't 100%, and sometimes you have to go back the old-fashioned way to symptoms and, and ruling things in or out? Well, you're right about tests, and, and often in a clinical setting, as you well know, when a physician sees a test and it doesn't look quite right, what do you do? you do it again. And usually it's not going to be wrong twice in a row. And so if someone has had symptoms of COVID-19, they had a diagnostic test which said they were infected. If you now do a, a, a rapid antigen or antibody test, 
and it's negative, then you should do it again because if that person was infected, they should have an immune response. So I think that's really important, especially at this early date when, as you said, a lot of the tests are not quite fully yeah. baked yet, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I don't have a wand, but, but if I did and I made you the immunology czar, mm -hmm. what do we have to do to get to where you think we need to be to start thinking about opening up the country? So I think what we need to do is what many people are talking about, start testing as many people as possible for antibodies to, to the virus, to SARS-CoV-2. And at the same time, a fraction of those should be compared in, in a clinical lab test, quantitative antibody test, to see if the rapid tests are giving us the right information. And well, what about diagnostic testing now? So, so these people who are infected and have had symptoms, right, so we have two sets. We have some people who are in hospital, and they've obviously had diagnostic tests to show that they're positive. And then there are others who are not, and maybe they have had symptoms. They're never going to have a diagnostic test because their infection is over. But now we ask, do you have antibodies? We would like to know in a general population, what fraction of people have antibodies to the virus, not just by a rapid test, by, but spot checking some of those with quantitative tests. Why, so does that help? Why does that help you? Why do you need that information? The quantitative tests? No, even just what percentage of people of the population have antibodies? Because we know with this virus, somewhere between 50 to 70% of the population being immune will stop spread of infection. So if you have a city somewhere in the U.S. and you find that half of the population is antibody positive, they can probably resume their normal lives at this point. And then how long do you have to wait after symptoms to take an antibody test? You shouldn't take it while you're having symptoms, correct? So how long is it a week, is it two weeks, doesn't matter? So if you, if you have onset of symptoms with this virus, remember the incubation period can vary from one to 14 days. And usually we say the, uh, the antibody response kicks in a week or two after the virus starts to multiply in you. So I would say a week or two after symptom onset is probably the safest time to start doing the antibody tests. All right. Well, that is great information. We'll see what happens with our uh, capacity over the next few weeks. And perhaps we can have you back to critique how well we're doing. That would be great. Love to do it, John. Dr. Rocaniello, I want to thank you again for taking time to spend with us. My pleasure. Last but not least, our tweak of the week. Take four seconds. Yes, just four seconds to work out. Doing that every hour, if you're spending the rest of that hour sitting down, may be enough to help shake off the well-known health risks of too much time spent seated. Who came up with that, you ask? Researchers at the Human Performance Laboratory at the University of Texas at Austin. They studied four women and four men. In one session, all of the people in the study sat around for eight hours. In a separate session, they broke up those spells of sitting with four-second bursts of exercise, five times an hour. They did those workouts on a special stationary bike, but the main thing was that they went all out. These were hard sprints. The next day, they ate a high-fat meal, and their bodies handled all that fat better if they had done those sprints the day before compared to the day they were idle. Now keep in mind that health experts generally recommend 150 minutes of moderate activity each week. That works out to 30 minutes five times a week. If you have a health condition where it's not a good idea to do a super hard workout, even a very short one, this isn't for you. 
But if you're healthy and have been sitting around a lot in quarantine, think of it this way. Everyone has four seconds, right? All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. One more thing before we go, though. Please make sure you've subscribed to our show so you don't miss any of our great episodes. And just a reminder that you can keep up with WebMD's coverage on coronavirus and all things health and wellness on our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hope you'll join us next time. <music>